Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. Uh, my next guest today spent several years leading strategic efforts at UPS and Home Depot, but his focus was combining the needs of e-commerce and logistics uh, with the traditional retail. So uh, this is just a, a little bit of something that he is good at. Uh, this guy is a powerhouse. You're going to see in a second. So uh, this obviously in this day and age, retail is losing a lot of market share to online retail, but uh, online retail comes with, with its challenges in terms of logistics. So he spent a long time in these two uh, humongous companies figuring that out. He also mentors e-commerce companies with Techstars, and Techstars is a worldwide incubator of tech companies. So he's a mentor there. So um, currently, he's the strategy director at Dragonfly, which acquires Amazon brands and grows them for um, uh, scale. And uh, when he's not working, I don't know how he's finding time, but uh, he's passionate about performing arts to the extent that he actually serves on the board of a nonprofit called Fly on the Wall. So uh, like I said, he's, uh, he must find another two, three hours a day uh, on top of the 24 hours. So uh, we'll hear from him now. So with everybody, meet my guest, uh, Drayton Hilton. Welcome to the show, Drayton. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. And, and quick correction, just because we recently hired a director, I'm a strategy manager at a Dragonfly Commerce. So just want to have that settled, but I appreciate the compliment. Oh, well, I mean, look, you know, it's, uh, yeah, we know who you are in terms of you know, everything that you've done. So yeah, we're going to learn more about it. So now, since you are the strategy person and mm -hmm. knowing, you know, it's one thing to be the strategy person, but it's another to know the everything that happens on the ground. So you obviously are, are intimately familiar with uh, what happens on the ground when you are launching or growing a brand. So with that in mind and the current economic conditions, as we record this in October of 2022 with high inflation and everything else and slowdown in e-commerce. So tell me something that you are doing to drive growth despite everything. Uh, definitely, Nick. You know, we're getting out of our comfort zone. So what would be the comfort zone? Uh, the comfort zone is keeping our business in the U.S. and, and trying to optimize there and, and win there is how we, we could define our comfort zone today. Okay. So in other words, it's the standard operation, launch, right. you know, maybe extend the product lines a little bit, you know, or cut prices, what most people do when time's getting hard, uh, or optimize more. A lot of aggregators I hear, they are uh, focusing on two things, uh, operational efficient, efficiency and profitability. So they are trying to renegotiate costs and things like that 
and you know cut out some of the fat in terms of their advertising maybe so that's that's what i see so in your case you're doing something different that's uh, right tell us what that is that's right. So we can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. So within the same view of trying to reduce costs and trying to find optimizations and simplicity there, we're also looking to continue to grow our brands. And one of those ways is through European expansion. Okay. So European expansion in other marketplaces or Amazon yeah, European sites? Uh, Starting with Amazon, but definitely open to other marketplaces as the opportunity is uh, more defined. Okay. So walk us through, how does a company launch in a, in a, in a European market? By the way, uh, give us why not Canada? Why Europe? Europe? Right, right. So uh, I'll start with that question. Why Europe and not Canada? Um, for the most part, we are in Canada as well. Canada is, is frankly table stakes. It's a lot easier to get into Canada from the U.S. than it is from the U.S. into Europe. Um, there are similar um, cultural uh, nuances. There are similar languages. A couple of differences because of the French language in Canada. But for the most part, because of the economic relationship between the U.S. and Canada, fairly easy to go in and out of Canada. A lot of uh, services are there are available. But with Europe, Europe is one of the largest Western economies uh, that presents uh, one of the greater opportunities in terms of lower competition, right? So U.S. to Europe is very difficult, and anyone who can overcome that challenge uh, is able to access a market that was that's typically not accessible by their competitors. So that's a big piece of why Europe is. It's a large market, um, being a very mature e-commerce world and a very high income area, but also lower competition from a U.S. standpoint because they just don't have the um, simplicity of access as the U.S. to Canada does. Okay, so as far as the, the comparison, I don't know the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. uh, European market versus Canadian market, which one has a bigger volume? Bigger volume is going to be the European market uh, because mostly because you have so many countries part of it, right? You have the UK, which is a separate country due to Brexit, which is already in itself um, probably a third to a fourth of the European economy as a whole. And then within the EU itself, you have these major players, Germany, France, Italy, and Spain, in addition to downstream countries like the Czech Republic and Poland that are all in their own way, large e-commerce opportunities with uh, high growth expectations in the future as more customers adopt these digital services. Okay. So let's now dissect this issue because this is, I mean, right, right off the bat, if you're going to expand, you've been selling in the U S and you want to go into an international market, uh, you may as well jump in a bigger market because you're going to have a much, even though the share may be smaller, you're going to have a bigger, uh, amount uh, of sales coming in so uh, so instead of going to canada it's best to head for the european market however there is no amazon europe right so it's all split so where do you start that's right. Uh, so I'll add uh, additional color to your earlier statement about you might as well start in europe versus canada and the additional color i'll add is 
yes, there is the how big is the market. There's also the effort to get into the market. So Canada is very easy to get into, but Europe's very hard to get into. And so it's always great to start with the easy to get to countries, start to get a, a lot of quick revenue and, and success, and then expand to these harder countries because of that lift. So now to your question about the marketplaces, that's a part of that challenge. So with Amazon, Amazon, uh, for those who aren't familiar, has a marketplace for each individual country. So you have a UK marketplace, German marketplace, et cetera. The uh, service or value that you get from Europe that you don't get in other countries is for uh, countries that are part of the European Union. So this is for the most part, all of Western Europe x the UK, you have access to each of those countries with no additional costs or challenges. If your product is approved in Germany, it's approved in Poland. If it's approved in Poland, it's approved in France. And so once you get over that initial difficulty of getting into that market, you have access to all those countries around. Um, as they grow and as they shrink, you have a lot more diversity in um, your marketplaces. Okay. So would you advocate for getting into one of the European Union countries or UK or both? I would say UK. Um, the reason being is UK is English speaking. So there's already a shared language there. In addition, uh, you don't have to worry about the localization concern. So making your creative uh, products and your copy uh, native to that local language. And in addition, the UK is already such a large market that winning in the UK already positions you very well to win in the overall European market. Similar to, um, as we say in the US, the US kind of drives the overall um, way the world goes. The UK is similar for the European market. It's a good barometer for how successful you'll be. I see. So. Um just uh, so launch in the UK. So there are two aspects of this. One is obviously getting set up as an organization, or I should say as the seller, because there are all kinds of regulations for entities, right? So yeah. taxes and blah, blah. Um, and then we have the listing specific mm -hmm. regulation. So walk us through those. So what does a seller need in order to start selling in the, in the UK? Definitely. So the seller needs two key things at all times. And then everything else below is um, dependent on your product category. Those two are a VAT ID or value-added tax ID. This allows you to pay taxes and be recognized as a business in um, the local country. You need that by country. So if you want to sell in the UK, Germany, et cetera, you need a VAT ID in all of those. Um, and the second is an importer of record. So unless you have a business local in those countries, you need someone there who will sign off on your behalf as a responsible party for your product. And, you know, the quick and dirty there is if you sell a water bottle into the UK and you ship it from the US and it goes to the UK, the UK is going to say, okay, this water bottle is this tax, pay me my taxes. Okay, fine, here's your tax. Then the UK says, okay, well, if this water bottle goes somewhere else or it sells somewhere else, who's gonna be the person I call up to make me whole for those differences in taxes and the changes and any issues that arise, that's your importer of record. So your importer of record is for the most part a um, 
a entity who is contractually responsible to you in the U.S. for your products in that market? So I am uh, just a guy, happens to be a, a creative kind of guy, and he came up with this product idea of this disappearing water bottle. Okay, so it's mm-hmm. going with the water bottle idea. And, and I'm selling that on Amazon US, of course, and uh, and it's a great product. I'm doing well. So I don't know anybody in the UK. I don't, you know, now I want to go into the UK market. Who's going to yeah. be the importer of record on my behalf? Yeah, so there are a few options and I'll go with the hardest options and I'll give you the the answer for Amazon sellers today to, to figure it out. So the hard option is you find a uh, distributor or a uh, family member, cousin, neighbor, you know, neighbor's neighbor who lives in the UK who will say, yep, I'll act on your behalf, Nick. I'll be your importer of record for your disappearing water bottle and we'll get it into Amazon or another warehouse and be good to go. Very hard because if you have, say, uh, you go from one unit, it's fine. A million units, your friend is sitting at the border day and night trying to sign off on paperwork, right? So that's just not feasible. The answer now is you have to find a um, compliance service provider through the uh, Amazon Seller Partner Network. It's a service Amazon provides. You could find Amazon approved vendors in that market who can help you navigate those issues. And those are great services because not only will it give you that importer of record, it can also help you with compliance issues, um, classifications to make sure you pay the right import taxes, as well as the VAT ID I mentioned earlier, making sure you fill out the right paperwork and have the right support you need to get into those markets. Mm-hmm. So let's say that this disappearing water bottle, I manufacture in China, I bring it into the US, I pay the duty, taxes, everything, and now it's here. Now I want to send part of the inventory to the UK. Um, What kind of duty and taxes are applicable to it? Well, the same duties and taxes for the UK specifically. So if you were to send it from China to the UK or the US to the UK, it would be the same duties and tax uh, as defined by the UK. Uh, Her Majesty's Royal Customs is what they call the, the group there, which I always found fun because it's very much calling to their, uh, their roots, right? Their uh, royal roots, so to speak. And so the duties will be based on the product. So it's a water bottle. There's a specific duty for water carrying devices, we'll call them. And then a tax is a VAT tax, so they like to charge the sales tax within the retail of the product. So that's about 20% of the retail is going to be the VAT. And so you declare all of that to the UK government. They'll, they have a quick and dirty math where they say, okay, this is the duty, this is the VAT. You pay that at import and then it gets into the market. And then the idea is when you sell the product, you'll get that money back. So it kind of balances itself out. Yeah. Okay. So I, 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 I lived in the UK for a long time. Okay. So I, as it happens, I can tell you all about this, this back business, uh, but I'll get to it in a second, but I, there's one important point here. So if you are importing something, I mean, now that UK is not part of the European union, That's right. it, it may not apply, but uh, there is, um, there is one thing that, Give it a totally different perspective. If you are not a U.S. citizen, 
Mm -hmm. but you move to the United States and then let's say you inherit something in your home country and you pay the taxes on it, whatever inheritance. When you bring the proceeds into the U.S., if you are not a U.S. citizen, you pay zero tax because <clears throat> they avoid double taxation. That's they right. don't want That's double right. taxation. So, But if you are a U.S. citizen, every penny that lands here, you have to pay <laughs> So, so unfortunately, that's one reason not to be a U.S. citizen if you are a foreigner. But uh, so does that apply the same way for duty? So if I'm buying from China, I brought it all the way from China into the uh, U.S., paid the taxes. Now, those cleared merchandise, taxes, duty and taxes fully paid, now finding its way into the U.K., UK taxes it or applies duty again, or do you get some kind of credit for what was paid in the U.S.? You don't get any credit for what was paid in the U.S. Um, so that's that's kind of the the net there. But there is a credit you receive for paying the taxes up front to the U.K. or other European countries. And so when you pay the VAT up front for the U.K. and then you sell it later, Right. The net is that that VAT is canceled out. Okay. Right. So that's so there's the that. second part. Right. Yeah. So uh, now, as it happens, I used to be in transportation, so mm -hmm. I can I can tell you all about this. So they had it's, it's HM Customs and Excise. So uh, Customs will apply these excise duties, and they are nothing to do with anything other than whatever you bring in. There is a rate you pay it. That's it. Yeah. That's a cost. Uh, VAT, on the other hand, is something that co constantly circulates, unlike the sales tax in the United States. Mm -hmm. So basically what the, the, the regulation says is government must have X percent. I believe it uh, was 17 and a half percent. Is it 20 percent now? It depends on the country. Um, so Germany, well, UK, I think, is like 20%. UK is like a little cheaper, maybe 18%. Yeah. So let's call it 20%. Mm -hmm. So uh, the government says, I am supposed to get 20% of what the consumer pays on this product. So, well, I am the wholesaler. And the government says, well, Mr. Wholesaler, you're buying $1,000 worth of merchandise you have to pay me 20% of it up front. But when you sell it, then you can charge the VAT to the end user. So now you buy it for a thousand, you sell it for 2000. Now you sell, you charge VAT on the 2000. Mm -hmm. So you collect it, obviously more than what you paid and comes the end of quarter or month, whenever you are declaring, you say, okay, this is how much I paid out and this is how much I collected. And the difference I owe the government and you write the check. So uh, that's the way it kind of circulated. And of course, that's an advantage. But what happens if you export, then you're not collecting, then you get a refund, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's, yeah. and that's the magic of taxation in a way, which is if you keep it in the country, a good example is if you import into Germany, but you sell in France, import into Germany, and 
you the, some in some cases you'll pay the VAT upfront to Germany, but if it ends up selling in France last, they'll refund you the delta. So Germany will refund you your money, and then France will charge you the money that's due to them. In some cases, you can bypass the German VAT by going straight to France um, in general. It takes a bit of some know-how to pull that off, but to your point, as long as you're paying taxes to the end country of sale, you're in good standing. But if you don't pay taxes to the end country of sale, or if you don't represent the retail price you plan to pay um, honestly to the government, that's where they start to claw back that VAT tax on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was one of the, the things, you know, I, mean, I wasn't born in this country. So when I came uh, over and we're doing the books, I'd taken over a company. And uh, so what happened in the, in the financials, I created a control account to track the sales tax that mm-hmm. I was paying. And they said, well, why are you doing that? And, and they, I said, well, that's tax. They, we're going to claim it, right? So I said, no, 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 not in the U.S. You don't claim the sales tax. It's a quote. That's right. I said, so, so what is it? I, I said, well, 8%, 9%, depending on the state. And I said, that's a cost. I said, you, you got to be kidding me. This cannot be, I, I'm telling you, I struggled for like two years accepting that the fact that I had to pay taxes uh, on sales tax that I cannot claim. So yeah. it, it was, uh, but in Europe, that's not the case. Any VAT that you pay, you claim. It comes right off whatever you collected. And then, you know, uh, if you never collect any, let's say, for example, uh, and we used to do this because I was in that kind of business. We, we would, uh, it was, we were always importing and exporting. So on the mm-hmm. importation, we would pay the VAT mm-hmm. and then we would export to outside European Union. There is no tax. There is no VAT. I'm not charging anybody. Then we would simply claim on every single quarter, we would have thousands of pounds being claimed. All we had to do was just uh, 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 add the export certificate. So yep. You have to, when you export it, you get a certificate and on, on every shipment, the invoice is attached and then it gets stamped by the, the, the customs and excise people. So if there is any audit or anything, you say, look, I bought so much and I sold so much. And then here's the difference. But so much of it went exported, you know, so there was no collection. So that's a huge advantage for Europe. Um, so, but as you said, it does take, tracking and accounting and everything else right yeah and also it takes a really quick there it takes a different way of thinking because in the u.s we're very used to retail price 1999 i take 1999 less my cost of goods marketing that's mine because taxes are paid on the back end by the customer but in europe it's okay i'm selling it for 1999 so i take home 1999 less the cost of goods marketing it's like no you take home 1999 less cost of goods marketing and 20 percent that so there's there's a little less margin you get per sale in the you in the europe in europe because of the vat up front that is taken off and then you take it back when you pay it up front because it's a net um, zero cost overall, right? You pay to the government, you sell it, you can't take it back. So it's net flat. But often as a U.S. company in those markets, we end up trying to price it like the U.S., especially with the euro and the USD being similar. But we don't take into account that, oh, the tax is coming out of my retail price. It's not being applied to the customer after the fact. 
Okay, so this is a very important point. So let's dissect this a little bit because mm -hmm. um, you're right in terms of thinking. You know, it has to be different thinking. So when I came to the U.S. Uh, many years ago, the sales tax was a big deal for me because uh, so, I'm, I'm not really a, one of those uh, people who love to uh, favor paying taxes. I, I, I'm high taxes. Right. Uh, so uh, also as a business, you know, it's the responsible thing to do to make sure that you structure everything the right way so that you avoid extra expenses. Nobody wants to have extra costs. So, uh, but that mentality was the first thing that I found different. So in the US, when you see a product, it's always so much plus sales tax mm -hmm. because sales tax has nothing to do with the product itself. So people understand. So when you see something, you you uh, you look at the price and then you know there's going to be, depending on which state you are in, you're going to add X percent sales tax. So as the seller, you assign the price as the price that you want for the sale of the item. Mm -hmm. Tax and everything else goes on top. But in Europe, the price that people see in the window, that includes the VAT, right? right. They don't want nobody, nobody. If you ever say to anybody in Europe, you know, this is, uh, I don't know, 50 pounds plus VAT, they they're gonna they're gonna run. That's not how they operate, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So plus there is one other thing. There is the discount. So if you apply a coupon code, for example, mm -hmm. you do not apply it to the tax part. Tax part you apply you apply the tax after the coupon is. It gets complicated. So yeah. the bottom line for listeners' benefit, the price you assign in Europe includes the VAT. The price you assign in the U.S. does not include the VAT. That's right. So whatever selling price you calculate, you add the VAT on. That's what you sell it for. But the price that, uh, I mean, uh, the product, when you import it into the country, you pay the VAT portion of it up front, except depending on how it is being imported. In other words, if you... <laughs> I mean, we're really getting into the, the yeah, yeah. Really, but that's where the cash is, right? It is, it is. And, and you see, and you're, and I think as you explain it, I'm laughing because you're explaining the complexity of it all, right? How do you make sense of it all? I mean, all this taxation, paying it up front, paying it later, grabbing it back, getting it reclaimed. I import it, I pay, I export it, I get it back. It, I have to include the tax in the price. What does that mean? It's it's a great deal of work. And that's once you're in the market, it has nothing to do with getting the VAT ID set up, getting the import of records set up, getting the compliance for your products in place so that you're in line with the European Union country, require, uh, country requirements and the UK requirements, which are now post-Brexit different, you know, slightly different, but different enough that it, it could lead to a number of fines and challenges. So, Dre, I have a question for you. So, mm -hmm. this is also a significant question. So, you said that uh, on Amazon Selling Partner Network, blah, blah, uh, mm -hmm. they have these compliance companies. So, uh, the, the fundamental question to me is, you are importing, let's say I sold my 
you know, disappearing water bottles, a thousand pieces I sent to the UK. I'm going to sell it, including VAT, mm-hmm. on, on Amazon UK marketplace for, let's say, 20, 12 pounds each. Okay. okay. Includes VAT. Yep. How much am I importing it for? Am oh. I also billing myself the same at $10 because I'm going to pay the VAT? Yep. Uh, or am I selling it at a different cost? What is the relationship there? So it's, that's the, the, the billion dollar question, isn't it? Is in the, in the, in the perfect world, you want one price for the entire world, right? If it's $10 in the US, and let's say the euro is one to one, then it's $10 in Germany, let's say the pound's a little bit extra, so it was $12 in the UK. Ideally, you want the same synonymous price because you should have the same cost base. But as we spoke to earlier, that gets included, which is actually kind of a higher cost to the customer, even though it might be the same net. But then the other piece is the importer of record fee, which can be anywhere from uh, two to five percent of the retail value. So for that ten dollar bottle, you're paying another what is that? Uh, fifty cents just to import it. Then you have the shipment, so shipping by freight from one country to another. You know, we do that from China to the U.S. all the time, so that's just a cost you have to accept, but it does vary if you're going from China to the U.K. or China to Germany. There's some delta there, and then there's the customs clearance prices, which, again, you know, similar to the U.S., you have to pay a brokerage fee to clear the goods there, but the pricing is going to vary a bit because it's not all the same. So because of those nuanced prices down downstream, freight, importer of record, um, and customs compliance and clearance, you do have to think, okay, I have to build these costs in because these costs are unique to this country. Right. So, so really, at the end of the day, this operation in another market becomes a whole separate entity and I, I just don't know the answer to the question uh, in a way that you can just simply outsource. Uh, you, this is, you have to go set up your own entity and frankly declare whatever the, the returns are on monthly, quarterly basis, and then run another set of books. Because what, frankly, you are in the business of making money, right? Otherwise, Absolutely. so we are in the business of buying for $10 from China and then selling it for ideally $25, $30. And then in the process, you turn, let's say you sell it for 25, you made $15 profit, you pay the, the overheads, you pay the, the, all, the, all the costs associated with it. And then you net maybe, I don't know, seven, $8, you put in your pocket and then you pay government the taxes, you're done. So the, 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 the bottom line is you pay 10 bucks mm-hmm. for the importation of the product. So now you're sending the item to the UK. You're going to have to do the same thing. Yeah. So you sell it for $10 uh, to the US entity, I mean, UK entity. And the UK entity will factor all those costs in and then price it at something. And then in the process, what are the pros? The pros are. First of all, you're not going to pay as high VAT 
as you would on the selling price. Um, so whatever VAT you pay up front, you're going to recoup when the product is sold, but the selling price is much higher, so that's okay. And then you pay the difference to the government. And when it's all settled, you're going to have a profit. And that's the strategic decision. Where do you accumulate the profits? In the U.S.? or in the other marketplace. So if you are using an outsourced party, you cannot really do this, right? Because it's not your company. So it becomes, a, a to me, a, a strategic question. How do I set this up? Uh, for the sake of convenience, you have all this, you know, these companies doing things. Uh, but really, do, do you really want to go that route? Because these things are also coming your way, right? So what is your take on this? Yeah, it's to your first point about you have to make it a separate business. Yes, absolutely. You, I think to view the UK and other markets as, oh, I'll just lift and shift from the, from the US is the wrong way to approach it. You really need to approach it as I have a disappearing water bottle and I want to sell it in the UK, or I want to sell it in Germany. And what does it take to do that and start from ground zero with the advantage that you have this profit center called the US who can serve as your, your venture capital, so to speak. Um, now, to your next question around, you know, you have these outsourced partners, they have all their fees and their setup, and you have to feed that in to the cost. And does that make you competitive in those markets compared to other players in that market um, who are probably taking less profit than you'd be comfortable with if you compare to the U.S.? Or do you set up your own operation, which could, to your point, not pay all those uh, fees in terms of import of record, and you probably get a deal on customs, uh, customs clearance and compliance, but then you open this door of risk of if you don't um, meet the requirements of those countries, I think we're all very familiar when it comes to European Union and UK, they have very stringent policies around following right. their import laws, and they're very quick to do fines and on large businesses and smaller businesses. So where I land is you want to start outsourcing because you wanna move quickly and you wanna move successfully. And over time, you want to define what can be insourced and drive cost savings and what has to remain outside the company and for how long. So for example, your disappearing water bottle, you're gonna pay compliance fees up front, you're gonna pay um, importer of record fees up front, and you're gonna pay VAT forever. You know, all constants, death and taxes, can't avoid taxes. But if you, if you find that it's very successful in that market, well, you don't have to pay compliance forever because you already have that product compliant. So take what you know, put that into a, a data room somewhere and use that for the UK moving forward and have it um, in the background. On the flip side, you start an entity locally in the UK that saves you importer of record fees because you just make your entity in the UK responsible. It also saves you downstream other fees like a responsible party, which is basically a regulation where they want someone who's physically local that will hold a sample of the product and will provide um, various investigative 
needs to make sure the product is compliant. You have an entity in the UK, you save costs there, you save costs of uh, importer of record, and you save costs on customs clearance because you can build that in-house. But for you to get there, you have to build the learnings from the outsource partner. You then have to hire within someone who is expert enough to navigate those challenges and can escalate those issues when appropriate. But until you get to that point, I definitely would say you want to outsource for speed and then over time optimize for cost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is so uh, stabby way of doing things, mainly because you can't be getting into all the individual, you know, nitty gritty or yeah. how to launch in a different market. You just outsource, but go in knowing that if this becomes a significant volume, it's only a temporary solution. Yeah. So until you know where it's going, it's okay to outsource, but go in prepared that, if this scales, then you're going to have to set up your own company, set up your own thing. Uh, so that's the way to approach it. It's kind of like we were talking in another uh, episode uh, about virtual bundles on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So that it's a new feature. And it's like that. They are great for testing. But you must start knowing that you're going to have to go into production to create bundles or packs if it's selling successfully, because virtual is, is really not the way to go, mainly because your FBA fee is yeah. double or triple, depending on how many you're putting in the pack. This is exactly the same model. So I'd say that's the way to go. Okay, so we covered the entity. I mean, I wanted to spend time on this because especially the point you made on pricing is so valuable Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't think about this until now, but I remember when I came over, uh, it was like a major, I mean, it took, I'm telling you, it took me two years just to think that, okay, you know, if I buy something, I see sales tax on the invoice, I'll just lump it with the cost. It took me two years to actually start doing that. I'm, I was thinking all along, you know, no, something is wrong. I have to be able to claim this. <laughs> no, 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 nothing new. Yeah. Uh, so for all the conveniences, uh, we do make paying for things very inconvenient in comparison to our our European uh, uh, cohorts, right? I, I, when I was in Australia, I loved that I could pay two dollars for a lemon soda, and even though you think two dollars for a soda, that's insane, but in the U.S., a dollar fifty, a dollar seventy-five, you're going to get probably two dollars and some change so it was nice to know that what was on the 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 sticker was the price yeah 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 so europe is like that so for anybody traveling to uh, any one of the european union countries or or uk when you buy something in stores you, whatever you're paying includes vat mm -hmm. so when you are leaving the country in the airport keep the receipt and get yes. that stamped and then they will send you the check back or they'll pay you back that i mean because what you are doing is you are exporting it right you mm -hmm. bought it in the country and you are exporting it so uh, they are going to reimburse so that's the that's the nice thing about vat uh, i mean there's nothing nice about taxes unfortunately but at least with vat it's okay it doesn't hurt the business in the end yeah uh, because whatever you buy, you know, this is the price you pay. You add the VAT and you price it that way. And that's it. 
and uh, it's a, it's a much better way. Okay, so I want to spend uh, just a little bit of time on the listing compliance. So how mm. should a seller go about uh, making sure that the product that I'm sell selling is compliant, that I won't get me in trouble? Definitely. So again, the Amazon Seller Partner Network is the best place to start because you can find a compliance partner who has an expertise in that market, who can look at your product and figure out, oh, here are the requirements for your product. Um, unfortunately, unless you have the time and a law degree to do it on your own, it is just too big a challenge, especially if you look beyond the disappearing water bottle into 10 or 12 other different product types. Yeah. Okay. So find somebody and uh, they will tell you. So this is important for several things. I mean, for starters, it's important to define the, the excise mm -hmm. as they call the, you know, how much you're going to pay in duty. In other words, what yeah. is the rate? So uh, it, you will get a, a tariff number. They call it harmonized. Uh, so yeah. the 12 digit code. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not UPC, everybody. You know, don't think it's UPC. <laughs> it will determine. So, uh, and this is another thing. So don't just buy into it. Also do your little uh, bit of study because there could be different uh, tariff numbers that may actually be more relaxed mm -hmm. uh, except the definition of it. So this is where the the product specs come into play. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was over there working, uh, it was subject to quota to import T-shirts hmm. because they didn't want to flood the market. You know, Europe is very protectionist. So they yeah. want to protect. So uh, unlike US. So um, they had quota. How many T-shirts could be imported from each country around the world into the UK. So what is the definition of a t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> this is very important. What happened was, it was if the t-shirt had a length of over 76 centimeters, mm. which is about 50 inches, then it would be considered nightdress because it was assumed who would wear a long t-shirt, right? Mostly women to bed. So uh, that was the assumption. So if a t-shirt was 50 inches or more, it's no longer a t-shirt. Guess what? There was no quota for night dresses. So what we did, we made our t-shirts 50 and a half inches. Wow. So I'm paid and required no nothing. All it needed was a license and the license was free. You would just mm -hmm. apply and, and get a license. And then when the merchandise arrived, you would submit the license with it and, and then off you go. But if it was Quora, good luck because now you have to line up, get your mm -hmm. share, you're limited to your share and things like that. So for those uh, who want to sell to the European countries, whatever you get in terms of tariff, that your product belongs to, just look around the neighboring tariffs. Yeah. 
and, and, and see if there are some flexibilities you can actually comply with. You're not doing anything wrong. All you are right. doing is you're changing your product spec and, and that way you can avoid some, because this one is a, is a hard cost. There's no question. You have to pay that. That becomes part of your cost, right? So um, that's my experience. Have you ever run into anything like that? You know, um, in, my, in my previous life, we saw it constantly where um, when businesses didn't want to pay for a compliance expert, they would go with the other tariff code, right? <laughs> so uh, they say, ah, other, it's, it's other, right? It's not, nothing still perfectly fits. And so a good amount of product gets through under the other tariff code. But if the uh, customs group ever does an audit, that's when the trouble starts. They say, oh, this isn't an other, this is a Chrome infuse, blah, 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 right? Uh, on the flip side to your example, making it 50, 50 and a half inches, 55 and a half inches, that is definitely an option. But I think for a lot of businesses, the challenge there is even once you have that knowledge, if your product doesn't fit that code, then you have to ask yourself, what's the cost to change my product to fit that code? And what is the net value to me for paying a uh, lower yes. uh, duties and tariff tax. It, it becomes yeah. a, a very challenging calculus because then there's a whole cost of changing your product potentially and how that impacts your U.S. market. And, you know, you really don't, you really want to avoid change as much as possible for the sake of the cost, but change is at times a, a fee you have to pay for growth. Yeah. So there is this uh, great saying that I always uh, you know, site whenever there is a situation uh, in business. Think global, but act local, mm -hmm. right? So you may have a great product and for the US market, you know, it may work with certain specs, but in the European market, it may be different specs. Uh, and those specs are all about satisfying demand. And the demand is going to dictate what you can do and you cannot do. There is one other thing just that, that I want to share now that we, I mean, I haven't discussed this kind of stuff for such a long time. It's funny. It <laughs> brings me a lot of memories. But one of the things that we, we did was uh, this night dress versus t-shirt was a big deal. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we would do is, and this was actually my job, I would go make an appointment with a customs officer. This is in, the, in their head office, nothing to do with shipments or anything. This is like high level regulatory. Not many people did this because usually people were afraid of those, those officers. So, so, you were, so I would make an appointment and this with, with an expert, a tariff expert. Mm -hmm. uh, they have people designated for that kind of stuff. So I would take the product and, and go see one of those people. And I would put it on the table and say that this is the product and we believe this is the tariff that applies to it. Would you agree? And then do you have any recommendations? And the, the goal was to get the person to say, yes, this qualifies for this tariff. Then I would get a, a letter, an official letter saying that this is a nitrous. So from time to time, our shipments would get flagged for inspection. Well, guess what? Not every customs officer thinks the same, right? That's right. So somebody will say, this is a T-shirt. I don't care, right? That letter would clear it instantly. 
So uh, getting that official clearance from a tariff expert uh, was a big deal for us. So it's just one of those things, anything you can do, obviously, to make life easy, because mm -hmm. otherwise inspection means, you know, it's going to be delayed for starters. And then, you know, they may suddenly say, oh, no, no, now you have to pay the duty and the taxes. And then it's one thing to fight things when they become an issue rather than, you know, ahead of time having it all clear. So uh, it was, uh, you know, those were the days. Right. So this was great, uh, Drayton. So, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're based in Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. So tell right. us, where is that where you grew up? So it's it's a, a funny story. I, I don't think I can't say I grew up anywhere, really. Um, so I spent, you know, adolescence in Miami, Florida, um, spent uh, junior high and high school in Atlanta, and then spent my college and, and early career years in New York City because before coming back to Atlanta. So I, I've pretty much went up and down the East Coast, and then decided to make my my home here in Atlanta because my family decided to settle here. My wife's family's here, so my wife went to Georgia Tech, and so that's what led me to leave New York and come to Atlanta um, and try to start something here. So, uh, what was the reason for traveling all over as a kid? Uh, so. My mother was a uh, my mother was a single parent and an educator, uh, so she was a teacher uh, at a high school. And in Miami, the pay for teachers just didn't compare to the pay for teachers in Georgia. So for a better life, we moved from Florida to Georgia, and then. I had spent my entire life in the southeast. My family had spent their entire life in the southeast, and so I wanted to see seasons, as I put it. And so went to New York City, went to uh, NYU. And in my first year, I had Hurricane Sandy and Winter Storm Nemo. So I, I got snow, I got a power outage, and I got a, and I got a hurricane, uh, the likes people haven't seen in, in that area uh, for some time. So I think I got what I was looking for, so to speak. Yeah, so you, you saw enough of it. And so yes. <laughs> So, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm always curious, curious about, because there is a, I don't know if you've heard this term, but uh, people who spend more of their adult years outside of their parents' culture, mm. they are called third culture kids. Have you ever heard that? No, this is new. Third culture kid. It's uh, TCK for short. Mm -hmm. So your typical TCK is a military brat because as you know, military parents, they travel around all the time. They're constantly changing. So what happens to those kids? And this is really what I'm getting at. I wonder if this is you. Um, since you keep moving around, you make friends. And the next thing is you're somewhere else. Now you have to make new friends and then you new friends and new friends. So Gaining and losing friends becomes part of your whole psychology. And then how you approach the friends, friendships that you make. Mm. Is that something you experienced as you moved from one place to the other? Oh, definitely. I mean, 
you know, as a as you are a kid, right? You have your elementary friends who it's your entire world. You have your elementary friends, you have your church friends, you have your cousins who are are nearby because your family some run families around. Then you move to an entirely different culture. So what even though it's the southeast, Miami, Florida versus Atlanta, Georgia, it's a very different world. Miami is a, a fairly, has a fairly dominant Cuban culture, a lot of Spanish as a second language spoken, and a, a lot of uh, strong cultural dynamics there. And then Atlanta is very much the typical Southern um, city, right? You have a fairly large African-American population um, with its own historical civil rights movements, et cetera. And then New York City, which is, you know, the, the center of the world, right? <laughs> so yeah, so yeah. being in those dynamics, making friends in each of those different cultural groups, it, it was definitely a through line where I made very close relationships and over time had to learn how to maintain those relationships and then also have to accept the end of various relationships for things that are out of my control. So, you know, I had a gentleman on uh, the podcast. His name is Mark Tomlin. He's a great gentleman. He owns a venture capital firm. He, at the time we spoke, he had uh, 21 companies in his portfolio. So we were discussing, because what I found in, his, in our conversation he was constantly pivoting, mm. like business models, lifestyles. He says, well, decided to live over here, decided to live over there. So, uh, so during the conversation, I picked up this thing that perhaps, you know, this is in his nature. Mm. And I asked him, when you were a kid, did you like move around quite a bit? He said, oh. My father was a diplomat, and there you go. Wow, there you go. <laughs> so, so in your case, you see, what I'm seeing from you is this. First of all, you start logistics, retail, Home Depot, UPS. Now you are in Amazon space. Mm -hmm. Except it's not your typical Amazon space. You are in the European operation. You're constantly taking on these new things and a lot of people think twice about it. Then it's outside their comfort zone. You started the conversation by saying, by going outside the comfort zone, right? So do you think that that resilience for you as a kid moving around, constantly losing friends and then making new friends kind of prepared you for this kind of life? I would say it, did in combination to being an only child as well. Um, so I was an only child with a, a single parent who moved around a lot. So I didn't really have a, I didn't have siblings to bounce off of or share the experience. It's very uh, um, a, a singular solitude experience of as a kid processing these things, making decisions. And I think because I was looking for siblings within friendships I made and then losing those friendships because we had to move. I think that did build a sense of perseverance, but I think it also built a sense of wander, which could also be seen as a, a form of uh, getting bored quickly. So I like to tell people, 
I can do hard things very well. It's the easy things that give me trouble because the hard things require you go really deep in, you, you focus and commit aggressively and you, and you stand on a position and you fight for that position. The easy things are, well, yeah, it's just common sense. Just press the red button. And for me, it's, it can't be that easy. <laughs> <laughs> Everything for you is, is, is because life hasn't been easy for you. So you, it doesn't come natural to say, wait a minute, there must be something. What's the catch, right? <laughs> yeah, so, I used to, uh, a really quick story there. I remember I, I used to, I started off my career in management consulting and um, I had a, a principal who was a, kind of a, a, a soft mentor to me. And he had this thing where he would always say, I'm trying to figure out how they're trying to screw me over. Not his language, not the word he chose, but that's the net experience. How are they trying to screw me over? And at the time I thought, I don't understand. Like people aren't like that. They're very honest. But then I started to have uh, dreams where we would have a big meeting with the big executive and we want to get their sign off on a strategy we're proposing. And they would say yes in the meeting and then on the back end, say no on the email with the CEO, right? So I would come in, I would go to the, the principal and I would say, hey, you know, how do we make sure he doesn't screw us over? <laughs> so it's, it's that cycle, right? That connection, like, okay, I get it. I see why he feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, it's at the end of the day, it's our life experiences are yeah. bringing us to where we are good or bad. Right. So that's right. It's, um, but it's ironic that it's the, the complexities in life that we take naturally, mm -hmm. actually they become the opportunities professionally because we become conditioned to handle them. Absolutely. And, uh, it's a big deal. So uh, this was great. Uh, I, I haven't had the kind of conversations that I we just had for many years. It brought back a lot of memories. And frankly, I, uh, I can do without that kind of experiences. Transportation, logistics, dealing with the compliance. It's never fun. And, you know, you never know. Yeah. It's never it's never done until it's done. So it's uh, but you are exactly in that space and expanding into Europe. So. For anybody listening, uh, you now know what to watch out for. So uh, you've got the Amazon network, but go in knowing that it's only for test. That's right. And you have to be ready. So this was great, Dre. So give us your contact information. How can people reach you? Yeah, definitely. So anyone can reach me on LinkedIn, uh, Drayton Hilton, D-R-E as in everything, Y-T-O-N, Hilton like the hotel. And then, of course, you know, reach out by email. It's my last name, period, uh, first name. So Hilton.Drayton at gmail.com. Always looking to help and provide support where I can. And, you know, great for, grateful for this opportunity to speak with you, Nick, and help out your audience. Oh, it was great to have you, Dre. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. No, thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode, and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends. <laughs>